Well, good morning, church family. It's good to worship the Lord with you all this morning. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Eric. I have the privilege of serving on the preaching team, and happy Father's Day to all the fathers. I know uh, Chris and I talked uh, this week, and there was a little bit of agreement that the passage we're preaching through this morning really didn't have much to do with fathers, so I wasn't going to try to make a Father's Day sermon out of it. So uh, thank you to Chris for the word of encouragement there. Um, I did, however, come up with a Father's Day introduction story, so, you know, small compromise, and I promised to reduce dad jokes overall this morning. Um, But the opening story I'll give you has something to do with our passage, and it's also related to being a father, because it's about grilling meat, which, you know, what what is better than that? About a year ago, I was in my backyard, and I was grilling in front of my very small, uh, very humble grill, and I began to have aspirations of something larger with more excitement, more more features. I wanted a bigger grill. I I had desires for something more, and then I looked at the prices, and I was like, "Mm, maybe not. And so that just kind of stayed where it was. And then I went down to go visit my parents. And in their backyard, there was a beautiful grill. A grill I had spent many years grilling on. And it was just sitting there. And I was the last person to have used it. And so my parents very generously allowed me to bring it back home. And now it's in my backyard. It's very exciting. It's like a long-lost friend that's back with me. It has all these bells and whistles. And you can judge me now. It's a gas grill. I know that's not cool these days. But I was very excited to have it back. Okay, so there's your story. Here's my concern. This morning you're about to read the passage, and the passage is going to be from Ezra. And you're probably going to be tempted to have the same exact response as my little story I just gave you. Where you're like, oh, that's nice for you, Eric. That's great. I'm really encouraged. That's a wonderful thing in your life. That's so wonderful. This morning we're about to hear about the people of Israel getting back the altar and then building the foundation of the temple, and we really have no connection to that. We're like, okay, an altar. Like, we haven't been to an altar recently. I don't think any of you have. We haven't been to a temple recently. And so our temptation might be to be like, well, that's great for the nation of Israel. That's great for them. But I really don't know how to relate to that. And so this morning, the question we have to ask is, what can we learn from the altar and the temple foundation being rebuilt? We're going to look at a period of time. Around 586, the temple was destroyed. And then in 537, so about 500 years before Christ, these men gathered together and they were able to begin rebuilding the altar in the temple. So we're looking at a historical event here and we're asking, what's the significance to us 2,500 years later? And I think there's really a lot here. We've spent a few weeks going through Ezra. If you didn't join us, do a brief recap. But in chapter 1, in 538, Cyrus said, hey, people of Israel, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And not only that, he's going to provi- Cyrus is going to provide resources to make that possible. And chapter 1 of Ezra makes it very clear that God is the one who's doing all of this and using Cyrus. So we studied that. Chapter 2 is a list of people who a year later in 537, they went and they went back to Jerusalem to go rebuild. Now chapter 3, if you already haven't figured out that's where we'll be, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. 
Uh, if you have an electronic device that is located to the left of the Psalms, it is near the historical books. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair rack in front of you. It's on page 346 on the left-hand side. So we're going to read Ezra chapter 3. So why don't you, once you get Ezra 3, go ahead and stand up and join me, and we're going to read scripture in just a moment. I'll give the rest of you a brief moment to get there. All right. So, Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to burnt, offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required, and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord." From the first day of the seventh month, they began to burn, offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation was not yet laid. All right, you can go ahead and be seated again. So, as we look at this text, the first thing we want to ask is, what can we learn from the altar being rebuilt? And I think as we look at these first six verses, we get a picture of God's plan for reconciliation. Um, reconciliation may not be a word you've used recently, so just to kind of refresh our minds what that means, when two people or two entities are at odds with one another and they reconcile, that means things are now right. Uh, that's an oversimplification. It's probably not a dictionary definition, but close enough for right now. Um, so hopefully that helps you if you're trying to scramble to write that down. Um, and then the first observation we can make about this particular section is that, yes, it's all about God's reconciliation with man, but the centrality of the sacrifice being go happening right now is something we need to observe first. That was a little clunky way of wording that them sacrificing the altar, really super important. Right? This is, this is something that's extremely important, so much so that when they thought to rebuild the temple, their first thought, I don't think there was any committee or debate, was rebuild the altar. Not like rebuild the Holy of Holies, not rebuild the wall, not rebuild maybe some of the other things. The first thought is we need to get the altar back. And I think that's the right thought, and I think it's, that's instructive to us. It's something where it's a picture of God showing man mercy. You, you think about the geographical arrangement of how, where the altar was. Like you had God, you had the altar with the priest, and you had the people. Right? It sits directly between two people. It sits between a holy God and sinful people. And there's the necessity for a sacrifice. So it's instructive. And we as Christians, we see that it points forward to Christ, but that's me just getting ahead of myself. So, looking back at the text, verse 1, let's make a note that says the seventh month. To 
us, that's not very significant, I don't think. But to a Jewish person, that would have been like, oh, the seventh month. It was one of the most holy months on the Jewish calendar. There were three very important things that happened in the seventh month. You had the Feast of Trumpets, otherwise known as Rosh Hashanah. It signaled the call for repentance. It began the month. Then one of the most central days, the Day of Atonement, occurred on the 10th day, and that was where the priests sacrificed and made atonement for the nation's sins. It had heavy themes of sin and purification from sin. All of those different things were going on this month. And then there was also the Feast of Tabernacles, or as it's worded in our passage, the Feast of Booths. And that was to remember the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. So all three of these things are happening in this month. And so it's a very fitting month to start the altar back up again. It's a very appropriate thing and very appropriate time to begin. Incidentally, it's also when Solomon started up his temple too. So just some interesting things as far as understanding what historically is going on. We're looking at a historical event here. We're also looking at something that's going on, and we're going, okay, I I think one of the questions that pops into my mind as I'm looking at this is like, okay, why don't we have an altar here? Like, right, like, why haven't we, I mean, I know we call it a piece of furniture over there, an altar, but why do we not have one? I I think it's it's a compelling question for us because it was so central to the worship of God's people in the Old Testament, but it's now absent, and so for us, we need to realize that the, the sacrifice of Christ has brought all of this to an end, but we're still 500 years before Christ at this point, so it would be appropriate for them to rebuild the altar. And so it's very encouraging to see that God is continuing to allow them to have this, this object that reminds them of the reconciliation that's necessary. So... Understanding that more fully, I'll just give you a brief advertisement for our 9 a.m. hours. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. That covers far more extensively than I will ever be able to tackle this morning. Understanding what exactly was going on in the Old Testament system of the law versus right now. Because I just don't have time to tackle it. But one thing that I think we can gather from this historical event here is that the altar was missing for a period of time. It was missing, but God's people were still capable of worshiping him, which should have been an indication to them that the altar itself, the physical object, was not the thing that provided atonement. And so I think that should be an encouragement to us as we look at this, realizing that the physical object was not the thing that made God and man right. It was what it pointed to in Christ So Jesus brings the altar to an end. Just study Hebrews chapter 10 and chapter 9 more more fully to see how that's true. But what is this knowledge that the reconciling or bringing together of God and man being complete in Christ have to do with us? It's understanding that God's mercy flows from faith in the sacrifice of Christ. So just as these Old Testament saints gathered to the altar that they had just rebuilt in faith, expecting that God would show mercy, we too look to the sacrifice of Christ. We look to the sacrifice of Christ knowing that Christ makes us right. And so there's two responses to that. One is if you've never come to the point where you've trusted in Christ, then this is the opportunity to find right standing with God through the work of Christ Today is that day. If you want that to be, you can find peace with God, not through your own actions. You can find peace through the cross. That's an incredibly 
very satisfying thing. And for those of us who know that, that should provide us with joy, right? Like that, that's an exciting thing. As we look at the, the altar and we look back on it, we realize that tension is resolved. We're at peace with God now because of what Christ has done. That should be incredibly joy-producing and just a, a, a massive weight off of our hearts as we think about us standing in the presence of God. So there's great joy in that, Christian. The next thing we see in this passage as we're looking at the first six verses, we see three people who are very important. So we see in verse 2, we see Jeshua, we see Zerubbabel, and we see Moses. And in them, we see a picture of godly leadership. We actually see very uh, explicitly stated in verse 2, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. How's that for a description? I think many of us would desire to have that tacked onto our name. These men played very important roles in pointing the people of Israel to the redemption that God would provide the reconciliation that he would provide. They were incredibly important people, so let's just recap who they are. Jeshua, he's the high priest. So he's likely the person, he's the front of the list, he's likely the person sacrificing at the altar. The next person we've got is Zerubbabel. Now, as Chris joked, you know, not exactly a very common name, but he's actually someone of great significance. He is a Davidic descendant, so he's, a, he, he's actually listed in the line of Christ. He is someone of great significance, and you see in him the office of the king. So you've got the high priest, the king, and then we've got Moses mentioned, who is the great prophet of God. So we've got prophet, priest, and king all mentioned here standing there as this altar is being rebuilt. What an interesting situation, right? These three leaders, certainly not without their fault. Let's remember that, right? Like verse 3, it says they, they built the altar, but then it says that there was fear on them because of the peoples of the lands. And as we think about these three men, they certainly had their failings, did they not? Moses failed to enter the promised land because of his failings. And Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they ended up having to be rebuked by Haggai for not finishing the temple. So these men were not without problem or error. But God used them in a very specific way to point the people of Israel to what God's plan was to bring men and God into right standing with one another. So they're very important people, and as we look at their imperfections, we draw our mind and our eyes to Christ. We see how Christ fulfills all of these offices. He fulfills all of them, and not only that, he is the sacrifice on the altar, the high priest, he's the king, and he is the prophet. He fulfills all of those things perfectly. And so we look to him as someone who completes the expectation of what is happening here. There is, a, a, later in the passage, a sense of longing that something could be better, and that longing is found in the completion when Christ shows up. So there's great hope for us, Christian. And honestly, we have a moment just to reflect on how God provides godly leadership, right? Like these men, all called by God, all enabled by God, and all used by God. Were they perfect? No. But God used them in a very specific way. And so we can praise the Lord that Josadak and Zerubbabel, they showed up. Right? Like, look, one of the lessons learned in chapter 2 is there weren't a lot of people who came back. Pretty small numbers. Compared to when they entered into the promised land, tons of people. Chapter 2 of Ezra, wow. It's not much of a showing. 
It's not much, but these guys come back and they're used by the Lord in a very specific way. So we can praise the Lord that God always gives leaders when necessary. Um, And so this is my little awkward, like, you know, this is not exactly application and Chris didn't let me do announcements today. So I'm just going to embarrass Chris because we've had Chris with us for 15 years now. I'm really grateful for him. This is, uh, I think Father's Day was your first sermon with us. And we can just praise the Lord for the leader that we have in you. We're very grateful for you, Chris. So... I just want to say thank you. So, anyway, just an awkward, embarrassing moment. He didn't ask for that. But I, one of the pictures in this passage is we see that God always provides what's necessary. And we'll get more into that later, too. But I, I'm always just encouraged to look and see these two guys stepped into a place when a lot of other people, verse 3, didn't want to. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so there's always opposition when we're doing the work of the Lord but God uses sinful people to point to Christ. So praise the Lord for that. Um, the third thing we're going to see here in these first couple of verses is we're going to see that God's reconciliation must never be forgotten. There's this list, if you look back at the passage from verses 4 through 6, there's a list of long things of offering, 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 offering. I won't read them all. But there's this sense of this altar is happening. There's a lot going on in this altar. There's a clear sense that there's lots happening here. And the question for us is why? And part of that's answered in Leviticus 6.19, where it says that the fire on the altar is just supposed to keep going and going and going. And they're fulfilling that, right? So some of it's just obedience, but I think practically... One of the reasons why the altar continues to be used day in, day out, night and day, is that we need constant reminders, don't we? And this is true of the Old Testament saints and us as New Testament believers as well. We need constant reminders of God and us. We were at odds with one another, but Christ came. Like, friend, do you need a reminder of that every week? I do. I need a constant reminder that I can be right with God. I can enter into his presence. I can pray to him. I can, I can entreat his, his, his presence for help. And I, I can do all kinds of things, but I can only do that because of what Christ has done. And I need to be reminded of that weekly. Don't you? And so here's a picture of it. For them, they're being reminded of what is to come still. So I think it's very helpful to see that all of these things that were occurring are constant reminders. And so for us, right, like we don't have an altar. The altar's done. It's finished. But we're still called to these regular patterns, are we not? We're called to the regular patterns of gathering together. Chris even referenced in Deuteronomy just how we're going along the way and we're talking about the things of the Lord. We're doing whatever we're doing and we're constantly reminding one another what God has done and who he is. That's our calling. That's what we're, we're supposed to be doing. And you think about some of the things that Jesus left us with when he left. He left us with communion, right? A, a tangible picture of what he has done on the cross. Another reminder, specifically in 1 Corinthians, it even says, do this in remembrance of me. You think even another thing that God uses to remind us, he gives us baptism. As we we find uh, new people who have professed faith in Christ, we, we visually represent what God has done in that person's life through the act of baptism. It's a very encouraging thing to be constantly reminded. And I think even as we begin to leave this section, 
it says that they were gathered as one man to Jerusalem. I know it's kind of a funny phrase, right? Like gathered as one man. But there's this sense of, of they've gathered together for a specific purpose to, to participate in what's going on in the altar. I wonder if, if you and I, if we really know the joy of gathering together as one man. There's great joy in that, Christian, right? Like, I, I know I'm like the person who's like tasked with making sure we're all fellowshipping, right? You know, and so it seems like Eric's just kind of shoehorning this in. I'm not. There's great joy in gathering together as one man, together as a corporate body to worship God. Do you feel that this morning? I hope you do. It's a good place to be. It's a good thing. So as we leave the altar, let's think now about the temple being rebuilt. As we're thinking about the temple being rebuilt, the foundation is rebuilt at this point. It hasn't all been rebuilt. That's later. But we reflect on the central point of this passage. We haven't read it yet, but you can see it. Even if you're just looking at your Bible, it should be very evident to you what the central point is because it's, it's like separated visually on most Bible translations. It's in verse 11, and you'll see it. We'll talk about it in just a moment. It says, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But for right now, it's up there on the board. And we're going to reflect on his provision and resources, or sorry, his provision of resources and leadership. So one of the great things that's encouraging as we read this text, I'm going to do it here in just a second, is that God is about the task of calling people to do things and also equipping them to do it, which is really good news. So let's read verse 7 through 13 of Ezra chapter 3. It says, So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shelatiel and Jeshua the son of Josedach made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and his, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Actually, we're going to stop right there. So looking at that, we'll get to for he is good and steadfast love endures forever towards Israel soon. But right now, let's look at what's going on in verse 7 through 9. We've got two distinct things. God is blessing the nation of Israel in this moment. God is, is pouring out blessing onto his people. And one of the first ways we see in verse 7 is he's providing physical and financial resources to do the very thing that God has called them to do. He said, hey, go rebuild the temple, and God is going, and oh, by the way, here's the stuff to do it. God is blessing them richly, very generously. Like, they're able to, you know, source things from places that would be good quality. They're, they're doing this with, with great blessing in that regard. The second thing we'll see is that they've been given a lot of people to do things too, verse 8 and 9. There's a full list of all these different people who have divided themselves up and they've, they've got a game plan of how they're going to rebuild this temple. God has provided them both the people and the resources to do what he's called them to do. And the reality for us is, is God's characteristics, who God is, is true in this moment. 
Right? Like, God is good, and his steadfast love endures to Israel in this moment. God is blessing them. He is providing richly for them, and God is showing his goodness to them. And he's showing that he is not done with Israel. More to be said about that, but he's not done, and he's providing for them. Now, the question for us is, they obviously didn't have the altar and the temple. It was destroyed. So did God cease being good? Did God cease his, his love towards the people of Israel in the lack of blessing? No, he didn't, right? Like he was disciplining them when the, the altar and the temple were removed. If we remember back to our Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 makes it very clear that if you obey God, things will go well. If you don't obey God, then you will get disciplined and there's a list of curses. And many of those curses came true. And so God is still good in, in times of, of discipline and removal, but God is also good in seasons where he's blessing and where he's providing. I think that's very instructive to us to realize that God's character remains stable despite the circumstances we might find ourselves in. But God is very good. He gives them exactly what they need. He gives them exactly the people that they need. And I think that's encouraging for us, right? Like, you might think, oh, well, you know, we're just kind of going through the book Ezra because we're doing some building over there. And look, there's the passage about building. And oh, I bet they're going to talk about building. I know it. I just know it. That's not it. That's not it at all, friend. Like, the, the building is the thing that facilitates our purpose. Our purpose is to proclaim God and tell people about the message of reconciliation. That's why we're here. Look, we did church out in the parking lot for a long time. We can do church anywhere we need to. The building, the budget, all of those different things, they play to support the work that we're doing here of telling people about God and telling people about what Christ has done. And so I think it's helpful to realize that God always provides what we need. And we've seen that, church, right? Like, we've seen God's faithfulness towards us, and we should anticipate it in the future. That should give us great hope. As we think more about the temple, the altar, sorry, the temple being rebuilt, you can tell I've been studying two separate things for the past week, can't you? Um, As we think more about that, it's the content of what we proclaim God's goodness and steadfast love. So let's look at verse 10 through 13 here. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of King David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites, the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept aloud with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for, aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So we're looking here, and we're looking at what these people, they've gathered together as one man, they're worshiping at the altar, and then we get a snippet of what they're saying here. And I think as we, we read narrative, a helpful like, moment of instruction is when you see quotations of what the people said, that's the author who wrote this kind of going, hey, pay 
attention to this. This is really important. And so what's said in verse 11, super important. They together, they're proclaiming three things. They're proclaiming God's goodness is the first thing. This is an interesting word in English because, you know, if you've ever done this, it's like, well, what's the good, better, best, right? It's like, oh, God is good. It's not what this means. When God built the world in perfection, everything was was right, God chose to use the word, it is good, right? Like, this is the picture of God's goodness. God is complete. This is an attribute of God that he is a good God He's complete in his moral character. He's perfect. The next idea that they, they highlight, that they sing together, is that his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. So his steadfast love. This is a word that comes up a lot in the Old Testament. It has the idea of God being very committed to what he says he's going to do. That he, if he's going to love Israel, he is going to love Israel. This is a a picture of God's covenant love towards his people. So it's very encouraging to see that they're reflecting on that and that they're seeing that that's true in seasons of blessing and in seasons of difficulty. And the last thing that is said here is that it's enduring forever towards Israel. My one joke for you, when you look at the Hebrew, it says exactly the same thing, enduring forever towards Israel. Um, if you're blissfully unaware of the fact that that's debated these days, good for you. Uh, if not, then there's my two cents on that. Um, but either way, very encouraging to see how God is not done with his people. That's encouraging to us, Christian. So all this is happening on the outside, right? Like, they're doing different things. Look at what, what's going on, too. Like, they're, they're praising the Lord with trumpets, with cymbals. It's loud. They're, they're singing Davidic songs. They're singing responsively, like back and forth. This is, this is a big outward expression. This is loud. There's lots going on here. But what's going on inside of their hearts, right? That's a question we need to ask. We need to understand what's going on, and we're actually let in on some of the different people's thoughts about what's happening here. So you've got these, these old guys, that's what the passage says, I'm not trying to you know, speak ill of them, but they're going, we, we saw Solomon's temple, it was great. And I don't know if you've ever looked at a construction site before, but like, look at a construction site of a skyscraper. And look at like the foundation of the skyscraper, and then go look at like a small little house. You can tell the difference very quickly, even from that. So they're looking at the foundation that's being rebuilt, and they're just going like, "This is not going to be as good." Like I, they they can just tell. Like you can look at it and be like, mm, "That's not good." And you know what? History proves that they were right too. Zerubbabel's temple was not as nice as Solomon's temple. And honestly, even Herod's temple wasn't as nice, which was a refurbishment of Zerubbabel's temple. If you want to have some fun, I know my definition of fun is different than most of yours, but if you want to have some fun, go read about the intertestamental period and what happened in the temple, because it's wild, but that's a whole other subject. Um, with that in mind, though, these guys are looking at this going, oh, this is not that great. But then you've got other people who've never had a temple, and they're just excited to have one, right? They're just so excited. I remember I was a part of a church plant, and we, like, found a home location. It's like, it was so exciting. You're like, 
we have a place. This is so exciting. Right? Like that's, that's the emotion that's going on there. I think it's helpful to see that both of these people were worshiping God. Say that again. Like both of them, I think, were worshiping God. They, they showed up, and they're there. There's lots of emotions going on in their heart, but they're still there worshiping God. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. There is a, a very dangerous idea that sneaks into each one of our minds where we're like, well, I don't really feel like going to church today. I don't really feel like worshiping God. You know, life has been rough. We might have a lot on our mind. We might be weighed down with something. And we're like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. Or the other side of it, right? Like life is going great and things are so great. You're like, I don't really need God right now. I'm just going to keep going. And both of those ideas are very wrong. You see people in very different places worshiping God together. That's a good thing, Christian. It's good to be gathered together. Even if our hearts don't necessarily come along right away. And this is true even just thinking about proclaiming God, right? Like evangelism. Let's think about that for a moment. You ever been involved talking to someone and you're starting, you're, you're like, there's a window to talk about the gospel. There's an opportunity to talk about it. And then like suddenly like a million thoughts of all the problems going on in your life just flood into your mind. And you're like, oh, can I really do this? Am I capable of this? The answer is yes. Yes, you can. And there is great joy in being involved in the work of God, worshiping him, telling others about him. And and many times we do that in spite of our emotions. They might be all over the place. I think it's very helpful to see that in this passage. The next idea that we see is the direction things are going. We, We see in the temple a beginning of the understanding of like what's going on here. Like, long-term, we see big-picture ideas starting to come to the surface in this passage. We start to see God's character, yes, and God's people proclaiming God's character. But we start to see the enduring nature of God and his fellowship with men. It's a very interesting, like, arc of things. Like, you got the, the tabernacle, you've got Solomon's temple. Things are going well. And then, then it gets destroyed, and now we're at Zerubbabel's temple, and then all kinds of crazy stuff happens in the Intertestamental period, and then we got Herod's temple, and then Jesus shows up on the scene, and it's very fascinating. He does some very interesting things. So one of the things he does is he makes a very audacious claim. He says in Matthew chapter 12, he says that someone greater than the temple is here. One of the shocking statements of Jesus. And not only that, in Mark, the disciples are trying to cheer Jesus up. He's a little, they, they think he's being a little grumpy. And they're like, hey, Jesus, look at this cool temple. Isn't it great? And Jesus is like, yeah, you see that? Um, not one stone on top of another. So these, these moments where you're like, okay, there's this ark of the temple. And that's because at the cross, many of the things that the temple pointed forward towards are finished. They're done. And so Christ has come. He's fulfilled many of the different things that this is pointing forward towards. And we can rejoice in the knowledge of who Christ is. And really, thinking back to the tension of what's going on in the temple, it's instructive to us. You got people and you got God, and you got a sacrifice that's necessary in the middle. And there's this anticipation of what's going to come. When Christ shows up, it's no longer necessary. The curtain temple has been torn and split open. There's now direct access to God. It's very interesting how now we are anticipating dwelling with God, but we don't need an altar between us and him. 
Isn't that exciting? Like, we look forward to heaven. We're back to Genesis 1 where we can be walking with God. There will be direct fellowship with him. We look forward to the enduring love of God towards his people. And we, as Gentiles, we get to participate in that by faith in the same sacrifice. We get to participate in looking forward to what is still yet to come. I think that's very helpful and very encouraging toward, for us. The temple pictured a reality that was still coming. Even as you look in the Old Testament and you look at the different construction items of different things in the artwork of the temple, so many of them hearken back to the garden. Have you ever noticed that? They, they, they point back to the fellowship of God and man and the restoration of that. And so, Christian, we anticipate that same thing. We anticipate that when we dwell with the Lord forever. It's going to be a great day. And it's all because of what Christ has done. And here, in this moment, these Old Testament believers, they got a glimpse of what was still yet to come. It's very encouraging to see what God has done and what God will continue to do and what God is going to do. So my question for you is, just like these Old Testament saints, they needed to look past the altar, look past the temple, and look to the day where they would dwell with God in eternity. Christian, can you look past the present circumstances right now? Look past this imperfect gathering of saints together. Look past life and look forward to what is coming, because that day is coming. It'll be a great day. So, as we're thinking back on the passage, reflecting on the altar and the temple foundation being rebuilt, how is that going to change our lives this week? Right? Like, one of the things we can think about as we think back on the altar is God's plan for reconciliation. Right? Like, there's a call to reconcile and be made right with God if you haven't done that. But for Christians, there's a cause for great joy to recall the source of ultimate joy for us and then to tell other people to stand against opposition and to boldly proclaim what Christ has done, how people can be made right with God. That's a, that's a message that this week we need to share with other people. And that we need constant reminders too, don't we? Just like the people of Israel need those constant reminders every week, oh yeah, that's who God is. That's what Christ has done. I need that. You need that this week. What will you do this week to remind yourself of what Christ has done? As we're looking back on the the temple being rebuilt, we're thinking about God's character. Like, will you choose to see that God is good if he's being generous or if he's not? Will you choose to see his goodness, his love? It's there, Christian. Will you proclaim to other people around you God's character? Here are these people very loudly, unashamedly, for the whole region to see. Will you proclaim God's character to those around you, or will you shy away from that? Where will you have an opportunity this week to tell other people about God's character and what he's done? And finally, as I just mentioned, will you be able to anticipate what God is going to do? Are there better days ahead for you? Are you looking forward to that, Christian? Look, the reality is the temple and the altar are gone. Someone better, Jesus, has shown up, and the good news, Christian, is that he's coming back. So let's pray in light of that hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can come to you as Father. Even reflecting on Father's Day, thank you for the joy that we can find you as our, our Father who, who does everything right. Thank you for the joy of being able to approach you, to call out to you. Thank you for your love towards us. 
We, we desperately need that. We need you to instruct us and discipline us. You, we need you to direct us. We look to you as our Heavenly Father. We rejoice in that. Thank you that we can pray, hallowed be your name. God, thank you for the joy of being able to exclaim to other people who you are, your character and your nature. And thank you that your kingdom is going to come. Thank you that we experience that now in, in part through the work of the, the Holy Spirit and what you're doing here now. Thank you for the way that you continue to work. And we pray that you would have your will be done, that you would continue to work here in this world through us. Use the people, use the resources here in this church for your kingdom. And do that on earth right now as it is in heaven. God, we long for the day where we'll be with you again. And give us this day our daily bread. God, provide for us everything that we need, even as these people came in very meager, very very destroyed circumstances. Uh, thank you that they were able to look to you for provision. We look to you to provide for us. God, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. God, thank you that we were reminded this morning of the reconciliation that you made possible through your son, Jesus. Thank you for that hope. And as we head out this week, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, protect us from our own pride. Protect us from, from those who would wish to do us harm. Protect us from, from our own laziness and complacency and our own desire to sin. God, may your kingdom come. In your son's name, amen.